Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, News Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, we're talking to Charles Keaton, an expert on philanthropy and editor of Alliance magazine, who will tell us about the controversies swirling around charities linked to the Prince of Wales. Charles will be talking us through the scandals and his role in breaking these stories for the Sunday Times. Um, All those scandals, of course, gave us some extraordinary images that some of our listeners will remember. The most vivid of which for me, Andy, definitely was the claim that a few years ago, a Qatari politician gave our heir to the throne bags and a suitcase containing three million euros in cash. Yes. Just banknotes flying absolutely everywhere. Um, but it didn't make me day th- in the royal house, all day. <laughs> well, it made me think it doesn't have to be limited to the royals. If someone sidled up to you, Andy, and said, all right, matey, do you like this suitcase? It's got three million euros in. That's for you. Where would it go next? What would you, uh, what would you invest that in? This is a if you won the lottery type question, obviously, isn't With it? With a bit more colour, yes. Yeah, which we, enjoy, which we do enjoy, enjoy indulging in. Well, I think for me, I mean, disclaimer aside, obviously give most of the money to charity and that that stuff of course notwithstanding uh by helicopter maybe that might be up there that'd be a very good way of getting around london i would say uh beating the traffic but um i feel like the little thing that you would well it wouldn't be a little thing because it would be very expensive and beyond the means of most people these days but an a vip trip to disney world oh very nice classic as well that would be the thing to do where you get so basically if you go to disney world it's very expensive anyway as uh many people will know but you can do this thing where you can pay even more ridiculous amounts of money to not only stay at the best places but then get someone to take you on like a vip tour where they take you to all the rides and they go through secret back doors and then you just don't queue and you just get ushered onto all the rides. And these are things that are not available to mere mortals. But you can get it if you've got the cash. And I feel like that would be something that I'd really like to do. I feel like I'm being set up to make a confession here. <laughs> Go on. Um, not that many years ago, I did have that very experience. I didn't even have sackfuls of money. It was someone else's money. Um, but thanks to the generosity of my girlfriend, now wife's family, um, I did. I went to Disney World. Um and we stayed in the big hotel that is on site. So you don't even have to travel in. You literally just sort of roll out of bed, get a free breakfast. And then, yeah, a sort of a concierge figure meets you. And um, I think looking back, I wish we'd been a little more discreet about the fact we didn't have to queue for rides. Yeah. Because, I mean, you were walking past people who'd maybe been in the baking hot sun with their families for two hours queuing for a ride. Then you just sort of conga past doing a dance. Oh, no. Like, oh, here we go again, straight to the front, <laughs> off we go. Um, and we were there for a week. Uh, it was it was an extraordinary wow. period. Um, but I, I don't know. I will say the other thing that happened is um, alcohol is strictly banned. And I did discover about my sort of um, newly to be related family that they had some extraordinary ways to get around this. So one night we went out with a baby in a pushchair, but it was actually just a pushchair that had been covered in a blanket with loads of booze stuck underneath. (laughs) And that was pushed through Disney World. So much so that there was this whole conceit where family members were like pretending to talk to the baby so that we wouldn't get stopped. And as soon as we were out of sight, the bottles were opened and much fun was had. 
I'm going to venture to suggest that you couldn't get that through security these days. <laughs> um, I don't think I looked innocent enough. I wasn't the front man for this whole gig. I'd like to blame somebody else. <laughs> All right. Well, so you've had your VIP trip to Disney World. So you that's obviously off limits for you. You've done that. You've ticked that box. Yeah. What would you spend your three million euros well, on? Well, I, I would say quickly, I wish it for you as well, Andy. I hope someday you will also be able to go and annoy nearly everybody in Disney World <laughs> by swanning around like you own the place. I mean, it is a hell of a way to spend some time. I was thinking about this question. So do you remember former charity minister Brooks Newmark? Who can forget him? I mean, who can forget the way he left the job? Yeah. <laughs> That's certainly the case. Um, so there was a Channel 4 documentary a little while ago where they went back and talked to him. And it turned out that his red box, his ministerial red box, he kept it. Mm. And he keeps it by the door to remind him of happy times. Of his six weeks as charity <laughs> His six minister. weeks and then being um, defenestrated in disgrace, yeah. And I was just thinking, I'd love one of those. A red box. Yeah. Imagine if I rocked up to Haymarket Towers... Every morning, not with a shabby old rucksack uh, and sort of a worried look on my face, but striding confidently <laughs> with a ministerial red box I thwacked down on the table to start my work, day's work. I think you'd finally look up to me. I think the staff would finally, they'd finally see the potential in me if I did that. Are you suggesting that I don't look up to you currently? Uh, I'm saying there's a physical reason that you might look up to me, which is about a foot <laughs> different in height. Um, I think a it's, a, it's, a, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a respectful uh, very proper relationship. Although you actually sent me a kiss by mistake um, on direct mess- internet messenger yesterday. I don't think we need to divulge that. What okay. would you? I don't think it would cost you three million euros to buy a ministerial red box, though. Not that I think you can probably get them readily, even on eBay these days. What would you use the rest of the money for? Um, I would give it to Derby County to buy a midfielder. Oh, there is no need. You mentioned charity earlier. There is no needier cause than a fallen from grace football club in the third tier of English football. No. Um, I'm not sure what that would get me these days. Um, Ronaldo's maybe, left foot. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Or somebody, or maybe who, his right foot. Somebody who retired from football 25 years ago, but <laughs> was one more payday. I don't know. Um, so there you go. Uh, I'd spend it all on red boxes and footballers. It was September last year when the Sunday Times published the first in a series of stories about charities linked to Prince Charles. The Times claimed that donations to the Prince's Foundation had been used to try and buy honours and access to the heir to the throne, and many more allegations would follow in the months to come. Among all this, some of the key moments. Well, in November 2021, Michael Fawcett, a long-time key advisor to Prince Charles, he resigned as chief executive of the Prince's Foundation over allegations of cash for honours, and the Scottish regulator has opened an inquiry, which is still ongoing. The same month, Mafus Marai Mubarak bin Mafus's charity was subject to a Charity Commission statutory inquiry over claims that donations had been redirected inappropriately. And then another statutory inquiry was opened into Burke's Peerage Foundation, where Michael Fawcett was an advisor. Earlier this month, the Charity Commission said it would not take any action against the Prince of Wales Charitable Foundation, yet another charity, after reports that it accepted a million pounds from the family of Osama bin Laden. And the Sunday Times reported that Bakker and Shafiq bin Laden, who are half-brothers of the terrorist leader Osama bin Laden, made the donation after meeting the Prince of Wales in October 2013. There is no suggestion that Bakker or Shafiq bin Laden are involved in any terrorist activities, but the Prince of Wales accepted the money despite being warned that the donation could, quote, undermine Charles and the charity's reputation, according to the Sunday Times. All of which has resulted in three open regulatory inquiries and one ongoing Met Police investigation, and yet another charity has been forced to shut its doors. To help us understand all these stories and how they connect together, we're joined on the pod by Charles Keaton, once director of the Pears Foundation and now editor of Alliance magazine. Charles worked separately on some of these incredible Sunday Times investigations. Charles, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. It's good to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. 
Thank you for joining us. So by our count, five charities linked to the Prince of Wales have ended up implicated in some way in, in this alleged wrongdoing. When did you start looking at these Prince of Wales connected charities and, and why? Well, I work in the philanthropy sector press, looking at philanthropy globally, and um, it caught my attention that I think, as you said last last year, um, last autumn, the Sunday Times and indeed I think the Mail on Sunday and a few others highlighted these uh, concerns about the conduct of the Prince's Foundation and alleged uh, sale of um, offers of honours in return for donations and indeed citizenship. So, like you at Third Sector, you know, I was mm-hmm. struck by this as a essentially a story about philanthropy uh, globally. Um, philanthropists from one country working with royal philanthropists and elites in another. And um, we, 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 along with many others, covered it um, and uh, picked up on what the Sunday Times and others were, were highlighting with these extraordinary revelations that seem um, to be still unfolding. Good. And I mean, obviously, there are multi, multiple facets to this story, um, as we've already mentioned. But what, what have you found, uh, broadly speaking, in among all the charities that you've looked into for the benefit of those who aren't kind of all over these stories like you have been? Well, that was the story of the uh, Prince's Foundation, um, which I wasn't involved in in any way, apart from as an interested uh, uh, onlooker, seeing Mm -hmm. this occurring as uh, something that was pertinent and relevant to what's happening in the world of philanthropy and questions about accountability and transparency. But subsequently, um, and as you say, in a separate capacity, I have been involved with some of the reporting around um, the donations and the cash in bags um, that were given to Prince Mm. Charles, which he then subsequently directed to the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund. And then another story um, uh, a month or so later about um, uh, accepting funds from the family of Osama bin Laden, two of his uh, brothers who made a payment of one million euros. Um, And, you know, both of these stories, again, raise those questions about how the prince's charitable empire is operating. And there are complex, I would say, web or number of charities um, and you were alluded before to the Prince's Foundation these were questions about the Prince of Wales charitable fund but as you know there's other charities in the the Prince's network and I think part of the journalistic effort has been just helping readers and listeners understand just how these funds are interconnecting how they're interlocking who runs them how their governance is structured and how it was that these extraordinary things actually occurred. And of all the things you have looked at, both as a reader and as a, a writer of some of these stories, what's jumped out? What surprised you most? Well, it's just uh, from a philanthropy point of view, just how elite philanthropy operates. Um, I became attuned to some of these questions um, when actually at Alliance magazine in late 2018, we did a uh, publish an issue directed to royal philanthropy. And it really highlighted some of the kind of opaque dealings that operate in, within that world of philanthropy, which is like the most elite of the elite world of, of philanthropy. Um, and also the reticence and deference that people have around royals. So mm. we found a lot of contributors concerned about making sure that the protocols were adhered to, that the titles were referenced properly, that nothing critical was going to be said, and just really this hand of self-censorship afflicting anyone associated in a philanthropic or charitable role with the royals. And I wrote in my editorial at the time that I felt that for royal philanthropy to do the good that it has the potential to do, it needs to be a bit more, less defensive, a bit more self-confident, a bit more willing to be 
you know, uh, exposed to, you know, reasonable questions that the public might ask about how it operates. So coming directly to your question, I mean, it is extraordinary that there seems to be, uh, you know, suggestions that an offer was made of an honour for Mahfouz and the Mahfouz Foundation and the Saudi Foundation, um, at least in the documents that were were, were brought to light, in return for an honour. And of course, you know, it's been denied that Prince Charles had any involvement in that. Um, though the investigations are still ongoing about Michael Fawcett. But then subsequently, just the fact that €3 million Euros on three separate occasions in 2011, 14 and 15 were passed by Sheikh Hamid bin Yassim bin Yaba al-Fani um, or HBJ, the former um, Prime Minister of Qatar, a philanthropist, to Prince Charles in Fortnum and Mason bags and in uh, uh, Holdall. Um, it's just I- extraordinary. Now, of course... It's been said that nothing, you know, no, there's no suggestion of any illegality, but it's not exactly something that the average person would experience, these amounts of money being handed over um, in that way. Um, and of course, the, you know, the charitable fund and its chair in Cheshire has said there was no failure of governance, that all due diligence was done, something they repeated in the equally amazing revelations that uh, one million payment came from the family of Osama bin Laden in 30th of October, 20, following a meeting on the 30th of October 2013 between the Prince and, and Baka and Sheikh um, Khalid bin Laden. Um, but it just does really highlight what or lift a lid or expose people's attention to the world of elite, um, the intersection of elite philanthropy and, and, the, and, the, and royal elites in ways that maybe are not comfortable for the philanthropy sector. Um, and it arguably damages the reputation of philanthropy when these stories emerge. But the, the damage isn't done by the messengers, whether it's you or ourselves or anyone else. It's done by the acts themselves and accountability, including journalistic accountability, is, seems to have been so important in bringing these stories to light because other institutions seem to have been less than enthusiastic in doing so. Yeah, I mean, we should make it clear, and you've obviously alluded to this already, Charles, that no one's being accused of doing anything illegal in any of these situations as far as we're aware. But obviously, it's not a good look when you've got millions of pounds worth of cash being handed over in carrier bags and or suitcases. But what have you made of the regulators' responses to these various situations? Well, um, you know, it is puzzling that um, the inquiries seem to be taking a rather long time, particularly the original inquiry around, um, you know, um, donations in, re- in return for honours and the Mafu's allegations, um, which seem to be, I understand that, you know, regulators don't want to give a running commentary, I understand that they are overstretched and they've got a lot on their plates, but given the high public interest uh, in this and concerns about propriety, in uh, charitable giving and philanthropy, it seems to me that they could do with maybe accelerating their investigation on that one. On the decision not to investigate based on these recent revelations around um, the payments to bin Laden and the, the, the cash in bag payments, these, you know, these are puzzling that the Charity Commission seems to have decided that they're not worth investigating. And it seems to me that, you know, is it, are they taking, you know, the defences and the denials at face value? Or is there something that they have seen that, that that is not in the public domain that really clarifies things? And if so, it might be in their interest as well as everyone else's to, to see that, um, to understand exactly how they reach their decision. Um and, you know, make because uh, I think ultimately it also, you know, raises questions about the robustness, integrity of the people that are holding these institutions to account, um, particularly 
especially when we're talking about powerful figures in the establishment and the great and the good. That's exactly when you need an organization to be both robust and seen to be robust. So any sense that they are perhaps not acting as either as um, quickly or as robustly as, as they might, you know, is, is, is could be damaging um, to them too. Um, so, you know, it is disappointing um, that the reaction seems to have been muted, but maybe there is more to come um, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah. And it begs the question of if it was, if these allegations were circling around a charity that nobody heard of and didn't have any big, powerful people, would the regulators' actions have been the same? I wonder what your view is on that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to hard to say. I know that, you know, the the regulator you know, is there to really hold the sector to account and to make sure there's no wrongdoing and to maintain the reputation of the sector. And I know it's a difficult balancing act for them between doing things privately and behind closed doors, but also making sure that confidence in everyone is maintained. I don't think there'd be any action without the the, the efforts of investigative media to actually highlight these these issues. Um, and that includes you at third sector, you know, third sector who have been also trying to hold the field to account. It seems disappointing to me that there's been less willingness in Parliament and in the wider charity sector to highlight these questions. And I think there is typically... One, a lack of party political interest in doing so, but also maybe a culture of deference um, around um, the royal family that maybe leads to maybe not the same level of scrutiny that might be subjected to uh, regular politicians. I mean, if a politician had been, you know, been revealed that they'd accepted three million euros and 500 um, euro notes, um, you know, you could have, from one party, you could imagine another party maybe yes. wanting to to highlight highlight this, but there hasn't been that. And in our own charitable sector, you know, which relies on a lot of royal patronages and relies on honours as a currency and status in our sector, it does seem to be in tension with at least those parts of the charitable sector that believe that their role is to really hold powerful institutions to account, to speak truth to power to campaign for a more democratic society, a less hierarchical society, maybe even a less class-based society. So it does strike me as odd and maybe disappointing that there hasn't been at least some more questions raised um, in the wider charitable sector, but that's exactly why it's so important that you and and others are are raising those questions, um, however uncomfortable they might be, but health of the sector depends on, on it and it depends on that critical media. There's certainly a curious relationship that we found between, as you say, deference and scrutiny. Um, when we was first working with the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund, it's the only charity I've ever had, who wrote back a very, very polite email, but did say, uh, can we have a copy of your article pre-publication by such and such a time for perusal? Which is a, a, a bold take uh, when you're asked a set of really quite straightforward questions by a journalist. Um, they had an equally polite, but I will say robust response. For me, I'm, I'm, Andy's looking at me nervously. I can reassure the editor that no, they, they didn't get pre, they didn't get pre-approval. Um, but you know, it is interesting, and as as some one of the um, informants to our uh, Alliance magazine's own Royal Flanfby issue in 2018 said that the Royals will only be in the like to be in the spotlight or the limelight if they can control it. And so there's a very powerful operation in place to try to control the narrative. And when stories emerge that maybe deviate from that, you know. It, probably leads to a defensiveness that maybe isn't as common with you know others who are more just used to the cut and thrust of of scrutiny questions and cross-examination which is all part of you know democratic healthy civil society so 
you know, I think there is that unhealthiness in this culture of deference we see. And, um, you know, it's, I think, good that there is, you know, more of a, a critical gaze. You just alluded to it there, Charles. But in terms, oh, there's obviously been a debate going on for years about the value of royal endorsement for charities. And obviously, individual royals have done their own bits of charitable endeavour for decades upon end. But what sort of damage does this do, do you think, to the to the royal kind of charity brand broadly? Yeah, I think I think it is it is you know damaging until and unless these questions are resolved. As you said, Russ, in your opening, there's multiple investigations underway, still waiting to conclude. Um, I think it's damaging to philanthropy and elite philanthropy if there's a perception that there's a certain set of relationships between wealthy and powerful people that aren't particularly transparent. How where money changes hands? Yes, it's ultimately for a greater good, but there comes a point where you know, this question of whether the ends always justify the means and actually a view might be taken by some that actually you need to have good processes in place. You need to be able to be transparent about how fundraising practices occur, particularly when you're talking about heads of state that are giving money to one another, particularly when those heads of state in other countries, say in Gulf countries, are also, you know, at points they have uh, you know, access to public funds, but then they also have their private philanthropic funds. And it's not always clear in those countries where one begins and the other ends. Of course, in our more, you could say, in inverted commas, democratic constitutional monarchy, there are more divisions. But even still, where those relationships are occurring between, you know, one country and another, as well as one person and another, it's not a good thing, I think, for the things that have been reported to be happening in the way they're happening. Um, so I do think it, you know, it's damaging to philanthropy, it's damaging to the royal family, it's damaging to the wider charitable sector. That's not to say that patronages are not of value. Um, I know there's been some research on that and different views um, uh, about that. Some say that there's actually limited evidence of the value, whereas others you know, point to, to the benefits, not just to charities, but to the economy. So um, that's maybe a debate for another day. But I think just in question of propriety is, is important. And do you think there's any chance that these stories are going to change that? Is there any way this will kind of lever open a bit more transparency and a bit more openness to scrutiny? I hope so. Um, I think it depends on how well people like yourselves and ourselves and others do their job. Um, I think there's a tendency in, um, you know, um, royal stories in particular to distract through all sorts of other things that are happening. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are questions to be asked and hopefully lessons to be learnt. Um, if it leads to a more kind of robust and more uh, modern approach to philanthropy amongst the royals, then I think, you know, it can still be a force for good. But I do think there's, you know, some unanswered questions, to say the least, at, at present. Um, yes. I wonder what you you both think of it, just watching and reporting on it from the kind of third sector point of view. I've I've always had a theory that anything that happens in the real world happens in charities if you look hard enough. So, you know, is, is there a structural race problem in this country? Most evidence points the direction there certainly is. Have we found that that's true inside charities? Yes, we have. So, what you're describing about sort of elites operating in a way that the rest of us would kind of be a bit open mouthed about. Is that going to be true in the kind of great private schools of this country? Yes. Is it going to be true in some boardrooms? Yes. Is it true in philanthropy and charity? And as your work has shown, yeah, it is. I mean, this is one way in which people operate in ways that most philanthropists wouldn't even consider. All those bags of money and sacks of cash. That's just not really how it's done for good reason. And yet there is a kind of subset of society right at the top that's been carrying on like this without ever thinking it could 
you know, lead to some difficult questions. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always sort of startled by the details of the stories, but the idea that what happens in the outside world that feels a bit wrong sort of bleeds into charities. It, it, it feels like charities have no real protection from that. Mm. I mean, just talking broadly about other charities, Charles, I mean, what lessons, if any, do you think other charities can take from this whole case um, that's been going on for so long? Well, I mean, it is just thinking about it from a philanthropy lens. The you know the, we're so we've been talking about royal foundations, albeit foundations that raise funds from others. And the Association of Charitable Foundations in the UK has really developed its kind of uh, good practice guides around stronger foundations, whether that's about investment practices, governance, um, funding practices, and. I wonder whether those foundations might learn a thing or two by embracing some of the work that has been done by umbrella bodies in the philanthropy sector to try to improve the standards of philanthropy and foundations. And, um, you know, it is disappointing when these aspirations are set out um, of best practice, um, but then they just highlight how short um, the, the practice can fall in some quarters where you might want to see the best possible practice. So, I do think there's, you know, opportunities for learning. Um, and many foundations in the UK are doing a very good job and certainly a better job than when I was um, you know, directing a foundation before my, my current role. Um, but there's clearly, I think it indicates, there's still a long way to go for, you know, these charities and these foundations to be run according to the best possible standards. And our listeners will be wondering what might be coming next. Are there more things bubbling under the surface that we might be looking out for in the next few weeks? Well, um, you seem to be doing as good a job as anyone in trying to bring these stories to light. So I might be asking you the same questions. I know you're hard at work with your FOIs and asking questions of different um, um, foundations. And I'll certainly be trying to do do the same. Um, uh, so we'll have to wait, wait and see and watch this space. All right. The race is on, Charles. <laughs> Indeed it is. OK, Charles, many thanks for your time. It's been really good to have you with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Each week, we bring you a good news bulletin full of the positive or quirky news stories we've spotted in the sector. And Russell, what have you got for us this week? Tell me it's not animal related. Well, you're going to be very disappointed. Not only is it animal related, (laughs) but it's dog related. And you you know what a sucker I am for stories about dogs. Word this week came from the Dogs Trust that Ty, a 22 year old Staffordshire Bull Terrier Dalmatian mix, needs a new home and anyone who has seen this on social media do go and have a look i fell in love with ty the minute i saw him (laughs) he is an absolutely monstrously huge dog with the sweetest face you have ever seen um he's also the oldest dog in the charity's care down in bridge end in their kennels in south wales and the dogs trust is just saying they want to find him a happy home now wait a minute before you go any further you say he's 22 22 years years old. old yeah now you're a dog expert i am not how many dog years equate to a normal human year well traditionally people have said seven so for example my beloved dog who left us recently she was 11 and a half so she was in her late 70s early 80s pretty good pretty good but by my maths this means that ty is 154 years old now that cannot be realistic by any measure i'm going to suggest that that whole seven years thing is a total myth or alternatively he's 154 and you're not really showing due deference to one of the (laughs) elder statesmen of the podcast 
Maybe, maybe not. All right, well, tell us more about Ty. Well, the main thing, apart from being a very good old boy indeed, is that he loves classical music. That's what the Dogs Trust told us. And the charity says that his favourites include Mozart and Mendelssohn. That's very nice, but I can't help but think that the press release somewhat missed a trick there. Mm. If they've talked about Mozart and Mendelssohn, surely the obvious thing would have been to say that he likes listening to Bach. Yeah, I mean, not only when Andy saw that press release, you could see his desire for that pun just like sprinting <laughs> at a million miles an hour through his brain. I mean, I wonder if, whether it might have been a sort of a clever double bluff on the part of the charity. They knew that people were going to make that joke, so they didn't make it so that people could do it for them. But That's true. Although if he likes Mendelssohn, why doesn't he like Mendogson? I thought we were going to leave that one to a last because that's really bad. No, I thought it was the best one, so I've lifted it right, I've lifted it right to the top. Um, uh, there are other alternatives out there. It's not like we haven't spent most of the morning thinking about this, let's be honest. Uh, what about if he was listening to a bit of Puccini? Do you think he might like Houndle? Um I reckon his favourite classical music is by Beethoven. Oh, no, that's terrible. We should, maybe we should finish on Wagner. All right. I think we should definitely finish there. <laughs> Okay, I've also got another story that's not dog-related. Okay, well, I'm going to go on strike. Um, So many people will know that the Notting Hill Carnival returns to the streets of West London after a three-year absence due to COVID. Obviously, the decades-old event Mm -hmm. is, among other things, pretty loud. Yeah. And word comes to us that Age UK has got together with Kensington and Chelsea Council to help about 40 elderly elderly residents who live on the route so they can be whisked away to the south coast when the event takes place, just so they can get a bit of peace and quiet. You've got to hope that Bournemouth is not also the site of a festival as well that weekend. (laughs) Those guys are going to be really annoyed. Well, they're going to Eastbourne, apparently. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so I think, I don't know what, whatever happens in Bournemouth is fine. Listen, if that's the only editorial error I make today, Andy, you should be (laughs) pleased about it. I mean, if you don't like noise, then the route of the Notting Hill Carnival, I understand that, is probably going to be a a tricky place to be. It is. Um, I'm moving house at the moment, uh, as my colleagues are delighted to hear about every single day. Um, So if the new neighbours annoy me, then I'm going to put in a call to some charities. I'm not yet old enough to make it age concern, but I'll find someone. I'll find someone who will sponsor me to go and... And, uh, to go and schlep off somewhere quieter, maybe have a quiet spot to sleep when I need to, no more music around me, that kind of thing. That's good. So Emma Will, who is the lead member for Culture at Kensington and Chelsea Council, said, Carnival is a wonderful celebration, so we're excited to welcome it back to our streets, but we equally respect that the sound systems and crowds are not for everyone. <laughs> we're proud to support Age UK in funding this seaside break, and I hope our residents enjoy the sea air, some fish and chips, and an ice cream or two over the bank holiday weekend. Sounds like a great time to me. Doesn't it? I'm also going way over the bank holiday. I've now got my... Uh, Uh, itinerary drawn up perfectly bit of fresh air i'm gonna eat plenty have some ice cream go for a walk on the seaside that'll do me sounds good all right that's us for this week we'll be back with another episode soon and in the meantime make sure you subscribe to the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm andy ricketts i'm russell hargrave thank you to our guest charles keaton and our producer aiden lyons at rethink audio We'll see you next week.